Hi everyone. It's a bit of a long one today and my voice is going on me, so please bear with me. Um, as Adam said, we're at chapter 18 of 2 Samuel and we'll be starting at verse 19. Now Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hand of his enemies. You are not the one to take the news today, Joab told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to a Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, again said to Joab, come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, my son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. He said, come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he is alone, he must have good news. And the runner came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another runner and he called down to the gatekeeper, look, another man running alone. The king said, he must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, it seems to me that the first one runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. He's a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who lifted their hands against my lord, the king. The, the king asked, is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant, but I don't know what it was. The king said, stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king asked the, asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Joab was told, The king is weeping and mourning for Absalom, and for the whole army, the victory that that day was turned into mourning, because on that day the troops heard it said, The king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men, as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went into the house to the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. 
Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on from your youth till now. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. Throughout the tribes of Israel, all the people were arguing among themselves, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines. But now he has fled the country to escape from Absalom, and Absalom, who we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Ask the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his palace, since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters? You are my relatives, my own flesh and blood. So why should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you are not the commander of my army for the life, for life in place of Joab. He won over the hearts of, of the men of Judah so that they were all of one mind. They sent word to the king, Return, you and all your men. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. Now the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and bring him across the Jordan. Shimei, son of Jerah, the Benjamite, from Baharim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites, along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, and his 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and to do whatever he wished. When Shimei the son of Jerah crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May my lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord. The king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned, but today I have come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my lord the king. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? What right do you have to interfere? Shouldn't anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that today I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his moustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, My lord the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Zeba, my servant, betrayed me, and he has slandered your servant, my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever you wish. All my grandfather's descendants deserved nothing but death from my lord the king, but you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? 
Then the king said to him, Why say more? I order you and Zeba to divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, Let him take everything now that my lord the king has returned home safely. Barzillai, the Gileadite, also came down from Rogalim to cross the Jordan with the king and sent him on his way from there. Now Barzillai was very old, 80 years of age. He had provided for the king during his stay in Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. The king said to Barzillai, cross over with me and stay with me in Jerusalem and I will provide for you. But Barzillai answered the king, how many more years will I live that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king? I am now 80 years old. Can I tell the difference between what is enjoyable and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats and drinks? Can I still hear the voices of male and female singers? Why should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will cross over the Jordan with the king for a short distance, but why should the king reward me in this way? Let your servant return that I may die in my own town near the tomb of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king. Do for him whatever you wish. The king said, Kimham shall cross over with me and I will do for him whatever you wish. And anything you desire from me, I'll do for you. So all the people crossed the Jordan and then the king crossed over. The king kissed Barzillai and bid him farewell, and Barzillai returned to his home. When the king crossed over to Gilgal, Kimham crossed with him. All the troops of Judah and half the troops of Israel had taken the king over. Soon all the men of Israel were coming to the king and saying to him, Why did our brothers, the men of Judah, steal the king away and bring him and his household across the Jordan, together with all his men? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, we did this because the king is closely related to us. Why are you angry about it? Have we eaten any of the king's provisions? Have we taken anything for ourselves? Then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, so we have a greater claim on David than you have. Why then do you treat us with contempt? Weren't we the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the men of Judah pressed their claims even more forcefully than the men of Israel. It's all pretty straightforward. I don't think we need a sermon, do we? Um, Ellie, I'm doubling your pay. That was fantastic, sister. Thank you. Uh, let me lead us in prayer. Keep your Bible open to Samuel 18, 19. If you have to turn back a page, and I'll uh, pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us, that your word is living, active and powerful and by your spirit at work among us, we can expect to be moulded and shaped into the likeness of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, as we look at it together. We pray you do that for us again tonight. In his name we pray. Amen. Of the very great number of things that make modern-day Judaism vastly different from Christianity, the number one item would have to be that Jews reject the notion that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. It only takes a pretty quick 
Search on Google to learn that, for example, quote, Jewish eschatology holds that the coming of the Messiah will be associated with a specific series of events that have not yet occurred, including the return of Jews to their homeland and the rebuilding of the temple, a messianic age of peace and understanding during which the knowledge of God fills the earth. And since Jews believe that none of these events occurred during the lifetime of Jesus, nor have they occurred afterwards, he is not the Messiah for them. But according to the Jewish scriptures, the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament, according to the Jewish scriptures, is this a fair set of criteria upon which to assess whether or not Jesus really is the Messiah? Whilst most of us probably have little or no contact with, with Jewish people, we'd still greatly benefit from gaining an understanding of what the Old Testament itself actually does set up as the messianic expectation, not least because it's going to increase our relational knowledge of our Lord, Jesus, and we want to know him more, uh, not least because it's also going to give us a greater appreciation of the age in which we live, but also because it's going to help us be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have to anyone who might want to know, whether it be Jew or Gentile, uh, about why we assume Jesus is the Messiah. And would you believe that one of the biggest and most important biblical criterion for the identification of the Messiah is one that's clearly illustrated and exemplified in the life of King David, as recorded for us in tonight's lengthy and dramatic passage. Uh, hopefully you'll recall from last week, David's uh, rebellious uh, son Absalom had tried to violently take over the throne of King David. And so after a time in exile, David and his men had just been victorious in putting down Absalom's coup, uh, which included killing Absalom himself, even though David didn't want that to happen. We re-enter into the saga now, point one on your outline, if you're a note-taker, when David's successful men are working out how the good news of victory will be delivered to David on account of the fact that it also includes the not-so-good news that Absalom has been killed. One of David's loyal servants, Ahimaaz, wants to be the one to deliver the news. But Joab, the commander of the army, says to him in verse 20, you are not the one to take the news today. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today because the king's son, that's Absalom, is dead. Joab assumes that Ahimaaz wants to be the bearer of only good news, but he knows that that's impossible because as he informs Ahimaaz just now, Absalom is dead. Instead, Joab sends someone else who might be considered sort of politically or relationally a bit more neutral because he's not an Israelite. The only thing we're told about this servant is a, he's a Cushite. And this Cushite was apparently an eyewitness of the death of Absalom. So verse 21, then Joab said to a Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. But Ahimaaz presses Joab to still be allowed to run and deliver the news. Joab thinks it's because maybe Ahimaaz wrongly assumes he's going to get some kind of reward. But eventually, he lets him go, maybe thinking that because of the time they spent arguing, the Cushite's going to get to deliver the news anyway. But Ahimaaz, being a native, unlike the Cushite, knows the territory better, and so he knows a shorter route than the Cushite. And so he runs 
and he gets there fast. And now you've got to wonder through this first bit of the passage, why was Ahimaaz so keen to go? And I think we'll find out in just a moment. But for the time being, the writer, who's really a, a good writer and something of a historian, wants us, I think, as readers to kind of be put in the place of David. You remember a couple of weeks, no, last week it was, Absalom, his cause hung in the balance. We were told literally Absalom, because he got his hair stuck in the tree, right? He, he was suspended between earth and heaven, right? Well, so too now, verse 24, David hangs in the balance. 24, why David was sitting between the inner and outer gates. The watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. And the king said, if he's alone, he must have good news, which I presume would conventionally have been true. And the runner came closer and closer. See how I think we're supposed to sort of empathise with David. Even though we know what's gone, I was like, oh, how's this going to be when the message comes to David? Will David still have a kingdom and will his son be alive are the thing that creates the tension. Now, given that there's only one runner, as David observes, it likely is a good report. But then, verse 26, when the watchman saw another runner, he called down to the king, no, different person now, he called down to the gatekeeper, look, another man running alone. The king obviously heard though, he must be bringing good news too says David, which sadly could sound like he's doing a bit of wishful thinking now. So the the tension builds. But then, thankfully, the watchman notices something again promising. Verse 27, the watchman said, it seems to me that the first one runs like a Himaaz, son of Zadok. So he observes the gate of him, you know, like, oh, that, that, that guy running, that runs like a this guy, right? He's a good man, the king said, he comes with good news. But that leaves David and us worrying about what then the second man will have to say. And sure enough, Ahimaaz does have good news. Verse 28, And Ahimaaz called out to the king, All is well. Literally in Hebrew, shalom. All is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who lifted their hands against my lord the king. In other words, David, you're victorious in the battle. That's good. But of course, there's something that David is just burning to find out as well. So verse 29, the king asked, is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant, that's the Cushite, and me, your servant, but I don't know what it was. And it's at this point that I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm fairly confident that we see a rather noble motive of Ahimaaz. He had been told that Absalom was killed. He knew Absalom was dead. And it is reasonable to assume, because it seems likely that there will be some kind of commotion between Job and his men about how they're going to deal with David's possible response to that news. That that seems like a legitimate thing to, to, to claim. But the effect of Ahimaaz's words here would have been, I think, to prepare David for the possibility that his son was dead, or even to make sure he was there to comfort David when he discovered that news. Now, I know it's a very cold comfort, but it's probably what Ahimaaz sees as the only shot at, at slightly softening the blow of what David's about to discover. And so, as we know, the Cushite then does arrive 
And although doing it diplomatically and with a positive spin, he delivers the news that Absalom is dead. It results in one of the most heart-wrenching laments, I think, in the whole Bible. Verse 33, the king was shaken. And another translation will have the king was deeply moved. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David is, and therefore, in a sense, we are, as we're drawn into the story, confronted with the horrible reality that it is actually extremely difficult to satisfy both the demands of justice, that which is right, but also the demands of love. This problem so stark that we see the king of Israel wishing he could die for the sake of his enemy. The king of Israel is wishing he could die instead of his enemy. David's mourning, however, also presents another big problem for the stability of Israel. Instead of a victory celebration, instead of, oi boys, we're having a party because we won, it means that the army have been made to feel shame. And it's possible that this would test or even break their loyalty to David. I mean, they've been roughing it with him in exile for, you know, however long it was, and now he's you know, going to take away their victory celebration. So Joab, being the man of action that he, he always seems to be, uh, decides he's going to go to David and sort this problem out. And even though Joab is over the top and seems rather lacking in emotional intelligence, how he rebukes David still actually has many what I've called grains of truth that David needs to hear. So verse 5 of chapter 19, then Joab went into the house uh, uh, to the king and said, today you've humiliated all your men who have just saved your lives and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You've made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you'll be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now, like I said, definitely over the top to our grieving father, but there is actually some truth to this. Absalom really did lead a very aggressive and offensive campaign against David. The whole sleeping with his concubines on the roof sort of thing, that was a, a disgustingly low blow. And whilst David certainly did not hate his men, in terms of appearances, his absence could really have been seen as a serious affront to them. So, just as, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, just as Ahithophel had previously painted a threatening scenario to Absalom and then after doing that, given a directive. Well, so now, so now Joab, having painted this threatening scenario to David, you're going to lose all your men, now comes in to give his counsel. Verse 7, now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left for you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come upon you from your youth till now. And again, it's stated like a punch in the face, but he actually has a valid point. So, verse 8, the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Now, we're not told that David said anything 
or that there was a celebration. Maybe sitting in the gateway was the best he could do, given how depleted his emotional energy was at this point. What is clear here is that as a leader of the people of God, he has no choice but to be a sacrificial leader. He needs to do what is right and helpful for his people, even when it means he's carrying a huge burden uh, on his own. I hope you can hear me being as objective as I can when I say this. I think it is absolutely wonderful that so often when people lead us in prayer here, uh, that I hear prayer for those who are in positions of leadership within our church. I remember many years ago asking an older Christian mentor of mine what I should do if I've had a fight with my wife just before I'm about to get up and preach a sermon, when the sermon's going to, you know, exhort people to holiness and love, when I've, you know, there's a good chance I've just been unholy and unloving and so I'm going to feel like a dirty hypocrite, you know, like you're already churned up on the inside because you've had an argument and then you have to sit there and preach feeling even worse, right? So what do you do? And his answer to me is absolutely brilliant. It's stuck with me uh, to this day. He said, well, Ben, it's not the fault of the congregation if you have put your foot in it with your wife. They deserve your best under God, just like they would at any other time. Your job is actually, therefore, to endure the pain and that horrible feeling of being a hypocrite because, really, a true leader is a servant. Now, I should point out at this point that I'm not saying that's a thing that happens very often, but you know what I mean? Like, it, it, the principle is really important. And even if I had had an argument with Stacey and then had to feel like a hypocrite when I preached, that would pale into insignificance if you compare it to David having just lost his son and yet being required to lead the people of God. But that also in turn pales in comparison to David's greatest son, Jesus, who bore the burden of entering into this fallen world and of taking all your sin and mine as a burden upon himself and then suffering the hell of God's wrath of the cross such that both the justice and the love of God could be satisfied and revealed and that was done for us, for the people of God. Back to David, taking Joab's right, although heavy-handed advice, thankfully didn't mean that political decisions needed to trump all relational considerations. They did a bit, but not overall. In fact, in his return to kingship, David makes it clear that operating relationally was actually more important than operating politically which uh, the whole world of social media needs to learn. All throughout the tribes of Israel, people were saying to one another that they should be reinstating David as king. But it's a bit difficult because there were people in Judah, the tribe of Judah, including family members of David, who had sided with Absalom. So for David to be reinstated as king, it's going to be awkward. As a matter of fact, it means he needs to initiate it. He needs to make the first move. Um, And that move is to say to those former servants of Absalom, some of whom are his own family members, hey guys, you're part of my family, same tribe, Judah, some of us, same flesh and blood, and I reckon it's right that you therefore take the lead in reinstating me as king. I'll not hold 
anything against you. And so, verse 14, he won over the hearts of the men of Judah. Just like if you remember three or four weeks ago, Absalom had stolen the hearts. He won over the hearts of the men of Judah so that they are all of one mind. They sent word to the king, return, you and all your men. Then the king returned and went as far as the Jordan, that is the the outside border of the promised land. Like He's he's been in exile and he's just about to re-enter his own kingdom. Now the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king to bring him across the Jordan. So I think what's happening here is there's this kind of visible demonstration of putting David back on the throne. We've got a, a kingly procession, if you like. When David finally did cross the Jordan back into Israelite territory, right near the end of the chapter, verse 40, it says, all the troops of Judah and half the troops of Israel had taken the king over. So all of Judah and scatterings of the rest of Israel were in that procession. And this actually caused a problem with all those other tribes of Israel. They seemed to think that David prioritising his own family and his own tribe somehow meant that he had a lesser interest in ruling over the other tribes. Of course, that is completely untrue. It was relationally important that those in Judah, many of whom had been instrumental in Absalom's revolt, should be the ones whom David is most visibly reinstated as king and therefore most visibly reconciled with. The fact that he was most publicly reinstated by Judah did not mean that he was any less interested in being king over all the other tribes, but sadly, Israel don't seem to get it. Verse 43, And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, so we have a greater claim on David than you have. Why then do you treat us with contempt? Weren't we the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the men of Judah pressed their claims even more forcefully than the men of Israel. And in this case... I actually think they were right to do so. You see, brothers and sisters, when God's Messiah, his anointed one, takes his throne, there's actually something right about him confirming his victory with his own people first. You might even expect that the good news of his reign might be given first to the Jews, first to Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. You guys still awake? Good. Last point, point four. As David is reinstated as king, he now begins to clean up the mess, to reward those who had been faithful to him, including those who were just then, upon his return, repenting of their rebellion against him. Shimmy, Remember that guy who threw stones and dirt and David as he walked and bagged him out relentlessly? Yeah, he realised he'd been a complete moron. And so verse 16, Shimi, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried, note the rush words, right? Hurried down to the men of Judah to meet the King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites along with Zeba, the steward of Saul's household, and his 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan where the king was, I bet he did. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and do whatever he wished, whatever you say, sir. When Shimi, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said to him, May the Lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember 
how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the King left Jerusalem. May the King put it out of his mind. Please, Lord, remember my sin no more. Verse 20, for I, your servant, know that I have sinned, but today I've come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come down and meet my Lord the King. And thus we have a picture in the juvenile mind of Ben, a somewhat comical picture, but thus we have a picture of genuine repentance. He knows he's got no leg to stand on before the Lord's anointed. All he can do is acknowledge his sin and beg for mercy. And you know what? That's exactly what God's chosen king wants to reward. So much so that he'll even make a point of fighting for that reward. Verse 21, then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said, shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, what does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? What right do you have to interfere? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Don't I know that today I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. He's so keen to forgive the repentant and to be reconciled with those who recognise that they have no leg to stand on. By the way, if you're here tonight and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're someone who has not actually bowed before the true king that God has anointed, please know that he is so patient and so kind that he's itching to forgive your sin. Turn back to him. Admit, lose the pride. Admit that you've got no leg to stand on and do it before he extends his heavenly victory on earth, which could happen at any point. And by then it'll be too late to do anything except remain his enemy into eternity. Of course, as you hopefully remember from uh, the fantastic reading that Ellie did before, both Mephibosheth and Barzillai also found reward on account of David's return to power. I'm not going to go through those accounts for the sake of time, but it is just worth noticing that after David suffered in the conquest of his enemy, after David suffered in the conquest of his enemy and returned victorious as king, that the string of people who came to him were either faithful or had repented of being faithless and all of them received forgiveness and reward. It's this sort of concentrated point where the once suffering, now reinstated David, is seeing repentance and forgiveness, beginning with his own tribe who occupy Jerusalem. It ought to make us realise that Jesus, centuries later, probably knew what he was talking about when he was chatting with these two guys on the road to Emmaus who no longer believed that Jesus was the Messiah. When he, having died and now been raised, walked along with them and then said to them words to the effect of, well, fellas, the Messiah had to suffer and then enter his glory. Why? So that repentance and forgiveness of sins could be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, beginning with my own people. Given what we've read about David here in 2 Samuel, this looks to me to be a fairly reasonable conclusion to draw about what you ought to expect of someone that God is showing to be the Messiah, to be the king in the line of David. 
And not surprisingly, Jesus did this, he fulfilled this, uh, these words in the biggest way imaginable. The actual verse that I'm sort of making the main point, Luke 24, it says, uh, Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what he's written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Of course, this is not a one-for-one comparison with what happened to David. David didn't die and rise again. Although, interestingly, David did actually claim that the Lord said he would not let his Holy One see decay. So it's absolutely astonishing that modern-day Jews are so quick to discount any of the messianic criteria that Jesus invokes here, especially given how uncannily close it is to the greatest Messiah Israel had outside of Jesus. Maybe it's because they haven't had their minds opened so that they can understand their own scriptures. That, of course, isn't to look down on modern-day Judaism. In fact, the Bible says that followers of Jesus ought to be especially loving to the Jews, for it's their heritage that has provided us with our Messiah and our scriptures. Furthermore, one of the reasons that uh, Gentiles, non-Jews, are saved is actually to provoke elect Israelites to envy and through that process to bring them to a saving knowledge of their own Messiah, Jesus. But an obvious way of loving Jews is praying that they'd come to know Jesus as the Messiah. We ought to celebrate the fact that Israel's greatest king before Jesus, namely David, provided his people with a template of what to expect when Messiah Jesus himself showed up. Now, I'm very for and very eager to pray for peace in the the modern-day nation-state of Israel, especially at the moment where things are um, pretty terrible. But I'm even more driven to pray that those who are part of God's true Israel, those who are Jews who are elect, would come through whatever happenstance to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, as their scriptures have given them every reason uh, to do so. Finally, just as the 11 tribes outside of Judah needed to realise that they benefited from David's kingship no less than his own tribe did, so too we need to remember that with Christ there is no favouritism. The fact that Jesus came first for the lost sheep of Israel, the fact that the gospel is first in terms of its applicability for the Jew, Romans 1.16, is in no way an indication that not all are one in Christ. It's actually wonderful. I I, I would love this if I were a Gentile believer. I think it would be fantastic that that we have a Messiah who prioritises relationship over politics and who makes all believers, whether they are Jew or Gentile, part of his eternal family. He gives us all of the same spirit by which we call his father Abba, our father. You, each individual here, is no less valuable to Jesus than any other believer in this room uh, or in the entirety of his worldwide church. The really comforting thing about that, and it is an objective truth, is that no matter how badly you feel you're doing spiritually 
And I know that every Sunday there's got to be at least one person in the congregation who thinks, gee, I suck, I'm terrible, right? No matter how bad you're doing spiritually, you have as much share in King Jesus as anybody else. And he's a very relational kind of king. He calls you brother and sister and, and friend. Where the rubber hits the road with that is that if all of us have equal share in our Messiah, then all of our service to God and therefore to one another is, is, is as valuable as anyone else's, in, even though there are many and varied ways in which we might serve and, and strengthen his kingdom. That means I think it's uh, really good if all of us would get on board for the way that we're going to plan to serve as a congregation and as a parish uh, in the, the midterm future. And a really good way of doing that is making sure that in two weeks' time you come to the new fantastic bit of land in Catherine Field that we have for that picnic and you think about how you can be one of God's faithful servants with a share in Jesus in the, uh, the mid and long-term future of this church. You might have questions or comments, you can write them in the connect form or whether we're going to have a question time or not is up to Adam but let me conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in the life and the activity of David we see this fantastic template of what to expect of the true Messiah and we thank you that you show us without question that the one who suffered even to the point of death and who was reinstated on account of his resurrection, is your chosen king to which every knee will bow. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone here tonight who has not yet given up their life for Jesus, that you would open their minds, that they would understand the scriptures, and that they would come to realise that Jesus is indeed both Lord and Christ. And Heavenly Father, for we who know him, we thank and praise you that regardless of how well or poorly we feel ourselves to be doing spiritually, that we all have an equal share in the Messiah. And I pray, Father, that it will please you by your Holy Spirit to enable us to serve you and to build his kingdom in our little neck of the woods here at uh, Grace and Lincoln Church at night. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.